The Australian Football Video Film Festival podcast is proudly brought to you by leaguetees.com.au. The retro footy fan gear that makes every week retro round. The League Tees footy shop is packed with footy tees, retro footy jumpers, hoodies and all things retro footy. That's leaguetees.com.au. Who was there when they wrote the story? Who was there in the colours of glory? Who was there when a new star rose? was there as each chapter closed we were there when the mighty fell we were there when they did it well who was there when the boys became the men we were there and we'll be there again Not just the last quarter, but a hundred minutes of top footy action. Welcome to the 90s, the decade that delivered. It was a 10-year period in football unlike any other this century. The electrifying 80s, the highs and lows of a dynamic decade of football. Over the next two hours, relive some of the most exciting moments in VFL football in the sensational seven. The Peter Hudson story, Dublin's Jim, the story of Jimmy Steins, the road to victory, Collingwood's struggle to the premiership and the year of the rising saints, St Kilda's fight to the 1991 finals. Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name's Dylan Leach. The the Electrifying 80s Part 3, the third and final instalment. This time we're looking at 1987 to 1989. The football has changed. There's interstate teams. There's a new broadcaster. There's superstars. There's great footy. Let's rip into it. We join Adam Collins, Shannon Gill and myself and we're in 1987. When the first VFL match was played in 1897, who would have thought less than 100 years later, teams would be based in Brisbane and Perth. But the introduction of the Brisbane Bears and the West Coast Eagles was not the only change in 1987. Channel 7 had lost the VFL's television rights to Sydney-based Broadcom. Eventually, the ABC was given the approval to televise games in 1987. Now... This is probably one of the most significant years in the history of Australian rules football because two major things happen that changes the course of how football is, in, particularly in Victoria, or football, let's, let's forget about the other states, um, is perceived forever because we have two clubs join. We have West Coast Eagles and Brisbane Bears join the competition. But in terms of television, the whole foundations are shook up big time because a what broadcast wholesaler at the time of the name of Broadcom 
buys the rights to broadcast VFL from Channel 7 because prior to that, it was all just gentlemen's agreements and it was keep off the grass agreements. It was like seven is the footy station, nine does cricket, 10 does racing. I think that was the deal. Um, no one touched anything. It was significant price gouging and price fixing at its finest. But all of a sudden in 1987, we lose Channel 7 for an entire football season. And the ABC become the broadcaster of football in Victoria. And superficially, the face of football has changed in that ABC television is the carrier of the code around Victoria. Naturally, we're absolutely delighted about that and we're thrilled with the response we've received since we found we'd won the rights just a fortnight ago. Well, tonight, on opening night 1987, it's the Brisbane Bears, appropriately one of the two new teams in the competition. The first two editions, I might say, since 1925, going in against North Melbourne, the last of the old lineup of VFL teams to finally break its duck and win a premiership just 12 years ago in 1975. No doubt the Bears are hoping that it won't take them 50 years like it took North Melbourne to finally win a VFL flag. But not build- usually, so after the first six or so years, we don't get Sandy or Landy, but we're getting like uh, Peter G., uh, t- Tim Lane, Drew Morfitt, Ian Robertson. We're getting these new voices accompanying the mm. football coverage. Well, and of course, ABC had, re- had been doing footy the whole way along, so mm. it wasn't necessarily a stretch for them to do it, but it was a stretch for them to be the 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 sole rights holder. So they were doing doing you know the winners was a show that was quite popular and all that sort of stuff. But that eighty six eighty seven summer, I mean, there's a, I reckon there's a ten part Netflix series in that or perhaps a 10-part, the greatest off-season that was um, documentary <laughs> series if anyone's listening and wants to um, hire us to do it. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's so much happened. Um, it's the start of modern... It's it's the for all of the the sort of the the heartache at the time. It's going national. It's the first significant move to going national. Obviously, the Swans are already around, but bringing two expansion teams in is is uh, you know something that hadn't hadn't happened for 60, 60 years. Uh, it it is a the move to go truly national, and then it's the the breaking of the of what you called before the sort of the stranglehold on on rights that channel seven had in it and it becomes now something that where this is going to allow tv rights to bankroll the game even though it probably didn't do it for a few years yet it it sets the scene and you know love him or hate him ross oakley was the guy who took the who sat in the chair at, at the finish of the 986 season and this all happened under his watch in literally the first three or four months that he was in the job which is kind of bizarre but it, it's a it's a significant one um that yeah Colin, i think we, we we're going to explore it at some point in the future we'll end up exploring it i think yeah there's some there's some alternative commentary tapes i'd love to get hold of so for the winners, did they they did their own call of the games, didn't they? I mean, rudimentary, albeit. Yeah, basically, back in the well, I say late seventies, early eighties, is that you had that there would be the the press boxes at at matches, and you'd have the Channel Seven commentators in one box and the Channel and the ABC commentators in the other box. So they were just covering the game as normal. It just it it just that seven yeah. was seen as the as the the high profile. Um, no, no, yeah. no. That, yeah, but I mean, but, but, the, but the call wasn't on ABC, and this is the point here. So I, I made a couple of discoveries last year about this in relation to cricket. So post World Series cricket, 
the ABC continued to call yep. test cricket in Australia. Every every game, every test match, all the way through that stretch, because not every inch of Australia was yeah. accessible by Channel 9 at the time. And the same would have applied for Channel 7. So, yes, they would have reached, say, 95% of Australia, but there would have been some pockets, some remote pockets that didn't have access to it. Thus, there's these, there's these commentaries, these game tapes, especially to do with test cricket, mm. but... I suppose with footy as well, where these commentaries exist somewhere. Yeah, they're in a there, basement there somewhere. Where, um, where, where they're, they're, I mean, for, not only with the with the footy, but with the cricket as well. So I, I'd be fascinated to hear. I mean, who was on the tools calling yeah. um, these test matches for the ABC to maybe twenty or thirty thousand people? But in keeping with the charter and in keeping with the deal they struck with Channel Nine at the end of World Series cricket. It still needed to happen, so there was something similar going on with footy. Um, uh, in and the if winter. you look at the yeah, nineteen eighty seven well, season in terms of alternative commentary, um, there was a, there was actually two TV broadcast teams that season as well because the ABC mm. had the rights in Victoria but didn't have the rights interstate. So if you were watching VFL interstate, it was broadcast on say Channel Ten Brisbane or Channel Seven Perth, and there would be this alternative call team. <laughs> but the ABC had their own. So there's actually two versions of the TV broadcast yep. of the nineteen eighty seven Grand Final uh, compared and to mo- the um, the one that's on the video, which I think is Cometti and uh, McKenna. Calling that one, yeah. So more, more, more bizarrely, Dylan, as well, is that the the, the one on the video, which is which is Kometi, McKenna, and Bob Skilton, mm. is that 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 was played. That was like the the broadcom broadcast, the host broadcaster, that um, was played in pubs and clubs. Uh, so a little bit like Sky Sky Television, it was a rival to Sky Television. Broadcom actually. As well as on selling to the the rights to the ABC and on selling to different places, which I think would have either taken the ABC call or the Broadcom call in Perth or wherever. But you could, if you went into a pub or club somewhere that had this sports play that was selling AFL footy, you would get this broadcast rather than the ABC broadcast, and, which is again, it's just one of those and another weird things iconic of history. Uh, 1987 moment uh, is of course Gary Bacanara and. Whenever we see the replay of that, uh, we get Bob Skilton calling those uh, final yep. stages and Peter McKenna. Oh, but yeah. I'm pretty sure, and I have I, I have seen it somewhere on the YouTube, and I'll, I'll look deep uh, when I'm in the post-production process of this show, that the Bacanara call is actually called by Peter G on the ABC broadcast, of course. Peter, yeah, that, ma- that, many that, of you would know Peter G as Mr. Dinkin. VFA, but in 87, yeah. he was calling VFL games for the ABC. And there's there's a whole backstory to how that all happened and why that happened. That's it's like we won't go into now. But yeah, that's right. That that thing that the the, the broadcast that we see was the host broadcaster, which was Broadcom, which was yeah um, Bob and Peter McKenna. But if you were watching the replay at home in Melbourne on ABC, it would have been a different commentary team. And speaking of the ABC's coverage from that season. Um, during the time this podcast has been recorded, um, some vision has emerged uh, from an ABC TV broadcast of a game in 1987, and it's brilliant. Not because of the commentary, but just who's in the studio coverage because they're <laughs> a, St. Kil- a Brisbane Bears versus St Kilda match uh, from 1987 from Carrara features Tim Lane hosting in the studio, and guess who his co-commentator is? He's, who's his expert for the day? An ex-player? No. Molly Meldrum. Our special guest this afternoon is a man who really hopes that St Kilda can make it 20 points against the Bears. He's their number one ticket holder. 
and a pretty familiar face. Molly Meldrum, welcome. Thanks, Tim. Thanks very much. Well, a big day for the Saints, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, we had, uh, you're right, I mean, since 1978, we've had uh, some real heartaches with St Kilda. So and, it's Tim uh, Lane <laughs> and Molly Meldrum uh, co-hosting the game. And they crossed to, I think, Drew Morfitt's at Carrara with Kevin Bartlett or something. Uh, and it's uh, Molly and Tim back in the studio. And at half time, they don't talk about the game. It's a week out from the final episode of Countdown. So mm. Molly's talking about Countdown at half time. Well, your association there uh, even longer than your one with Countdown, which is coming to an end next week. Yes, it's a very sad time. Um, I suppose everything has got to come to an end. In a, uh, uh, the era has got to end sometimes. Um, the great thing about Countdown um, is that we've been very proud of it. I think the ABC's been very proud of it. And uh, we've got a great show next week, um, uh, the final show, 7.30, the final countdown. I keep sort of seeing Channel 9 and I kept saying the final yes, countdown yes. is happening this weekend. <laughs> I kept saying, wrong, it's next weekend. No, it's going to be, a, a, I think, a show everyone will be proud of. There's some uh, the finest Australian talent uh, performing on that show. And uh, I can't think of a more fitting and more dignified show to go out on on a show that I think has uh, touched every household and something I know I'm proud of and everyone... Uh, Exactly. Well, that was a that was a huge cultural moment. But I think I think uh, um, Ash talked about it in Sensational Seventies that the at that time the winners was was on a, on a Sunday afternoon. The replay from the day before on on ABC, which went in straight into uh, Countdown at six o'clock. So there was this connection between. <laughs> between their footy coverage and countdown that have been going on, going on for many years as they, they bookended each other. Um, TV aside, as for the football itself and what's featured in Electrifying 80s, and I do speak as a Richmond supporter, um, there's that game where Warwick Kappa is having a day out against Richmond. And I think if there's one piece of footage that summarises Richmond from 1983 up until 2017... <laughs> is the vision of Tony Jewell, who's just been brought back as coach of Richmond. We've gone through four coaches before he comes back, ripping just in, in agonising pain in the Richmond coaches' box, tearing his hair out, looking like he's in tears. And it's like, if you could just sum up Richmond from that period, it's that vision of Tony Jewell. Kappa's acrobatics were obviously not appreciated by Richmond coach Tony Jewell, who was more concerned about the way his side was playing. Tony Jewell, he doesn't look a very happy man at all. And that, that season, and my vague memories of it as a little kid, the Swans were just the f absolute flavour of the year, even though they didn't end up going on and doing a hell of a lot in the finals. They Kappa was the biggest star in the game, you know, in that sense, in a lot of ways. And they had this amazing streak of three matches during the season where they kicked 30 goals in every game, three games in a row at the SCG. And they're all live broadcasts, uh, either Sunday or Friday night. And everybody watched it. And um, this idea of the Swans is everyone's second team because you get to watch them live. Um, you know, just... To see a team kick thirty goals three weeks straight, yeah. I mean, it, it's clearly. You, know, you mentioned those. Uh, you never, never see it happen again. You mentioned those Sydney Swans um, goal blitzes where they're kicking thirty plus per week. Um, I'm adamant. I've seen replays of them, and the Sydney Swanettes are in full dance mode. And there was like a Swans jingle they used to dance to uh, after every yep. goal. That was like after uh, every goal. Uh, show was, them Sydney. Yeah. Uh, uh. It's hilarious. I'm pretty sure I'd love to trace that song down. Show 
but um, yeah, there was something that got played after every every goal, and I'm not sure if it was a, it might not a snippet of a song or something. It was certainly, yeah, and, and, and uh, part of part of this the SCG TV experience. Peak footy in the eighties there, um, Adam. 1987. It's another grand final for Hawthorne, but it, it's quite the final series for Hawthorne. Do you want to? Take me through the experience from a Hawthorne supporter's perspective of Gary Buckenara into the grand final the following week. Well, I can tell you what it was like from the car park. Um, my dad, in his wisdom, thought we were cooked and we left. <laughs> and, uh, and we got told we got told in the car park that, uh, that we'd won. I mean, I was three, so I only have the most, the most peripheral memory of it, I suppose. But I do, I do remember um, us having been there uh, and then having left. And that wasn't the first or, or last time that my dad made a brash decision about when we should leave BFL Park um, to beat the traffic, or in this case, probably more as a tantrum than anything else that we weren't going to make the grand final. And, and so it was. But yes, I mean, of course, I've watched that that footage yeah, more, more times than I care to. I mean, I actually transcribed the Skilton McKenna um, commentary a couple of years ago on preliminary final weekend and, you know, the whole poor old Melbourne and, and so on, um, which I always quite enjoy whenever Melbourne have a, have something horrible happen to them. Poor old Melbourne. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Dunstall... Stephen Stretch can't play, believe it. Uh, ...the next week. This by Hawthorne, poor old Melbourne. You've got to, the hearts go after the Melbourne Football Club. Stephen Stretch can't believe it, but... The yeah, the the um, the end to end goal, but yeah, I think Dunstall. The fact that Hawthorne made the finals where they did was owing to the fact that he had kicked two goals in a minute at Cadinia Park in the final round. It was the most extraordinary final day of the season. It was more like a Premier League yeah, end of, I was, end I of was, season. I mean, in the best, was, the way we imagine like 2012 with the Premier League, with with these three games happening simultaneously and. Any any combination is possible for the final five. It's so tight, the tightest season there's been. And yeah, Hawthorne edge out, uh, edge out Geelong by virtue of the fact that Dunstall's having his first massive season. So he had a fabulous season in, in 86, but 87, he would have kicked 100. He finished on 97, I think it was, when he was injured in the prelims. Him not playing is, is a big factor on grand final day, as is the fact that Dermy's cooked and he says as much in that um, in that uh, mm. video that you reviewed last year, Dylan. 87 was the year that he was least likely to influence a grand final and Reese jones ran amok. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it makes sense that Hawthorne didn't go all the way that year. The fact that Russell Morris, who was an All-Australian in 1986, um, is taken out by um, Jim Edmund uh, at, at Carrara with the sort of cop that, cop that on the scoreboard, which I don't think is an electrifying 80s, but certainly something that Hawthorne supporters never forgot. Um, you know, that, that hit from Jim Edmund, which was just fucking brutal. Um, Dunstall kicked 11 that day, by the way, and we went on to win by a mile, but mm. losing Morris, who was uh, an important sort of supporting part alongside Dunstall and, and Burton at that time. So uh, frustrating, uh, I, I suppose, not being able to go back to back, but it made sense that Carlton, I mean, they were, they, were, they were a superb team that year. If I could just take it back two steps back to that final home and away day in round 22, 1987, um, it's it's a, it's good for advocating to have multiple games on at the same time. By the way, um, Gilly, as a Melbourne supporter, the this, the the game that the D's play at Wheaton Oval, uh, Western Oval, I should say at the time, is quite iconic and, and a pretty special moment for the Melbourne Football Club. Um, probably one of the most special moments of the Melbourne mm. Football Club in the past fifty years. Yeah. So the, the backstory to that that day is that. Melbourne had in 87 they'd won the night grand final and they'd actually gone on a bit of a spending spree they'd changed back to navy blue that year and 
Mm. Robbie Flower was playing his last season. It was always going to be his last season. And there was this whole thing about we need to try and make the finals for Robbie because he'd never played a final. So um, it had been 23 years since they had played in the finals and they get to the final round. They need to beat Footscray, who are also in the finals mix. If they win, they might get in. Uh, they need to beat Footscray at Western Oval. Not, a, not an easy task. And Geelong need to get beaten by Hawthorne for Melbourne to make it. So you've got this. And then across at Waverley, you've got North playing Carlton, which is effectively going to de- determine who gets top spot on the ladder. And those three games are all happening. And, and I've heard the stories told by people about how Melbourne get up on Footscray and get sort of 15 points up or 10 points up and they believe they're home with about five minutes to go. But Geelong have been up all day on Hawthorne. So everyone in the crowd at the Western Oval, um, once once that game's in hand, turns their radios a- across to the Hawthorne-Geelong game and a huge roar went out when Dunstall kicks a goal to get Hawthorne in front mm. at Geelong. And then across at the other ground, North, who also made the finals that year, are playing Carlton to decide and Carlton's trying to get the top spot, which eventually, you know, really you could argue, wins them the flag that having that week off and being fresh on grand final day. And uh, Steve Kernan kicks a goal after the siren to win that game. It's it's the most amazing last day of a, of a home and away season ever, I, I'd say. I really hope that the episode of footy replay from that day gets uploaded in full because I'm noticing that's starting to appear on YouTube, uh, old episodes of footy replay in full. But you know what would, what would be... A fascinating listen would be to get a radio broadcast, a football radio broadcast from that day, particularly in the last quarter. Mm. Could be from any one of those three games because you'd have those around the grounds updates. Around the grounds. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. It, and it, was, it, it would yeah. just make yeah. for brilliant listening. And, you know, we're, we're in the age of crazy fixtures and frenzies and floating fixtures, but I'll tell you what, if the AFL ever wanted to get too crazy and make every game played at the same time in round 23 for scenes like that, I'm completely on board. That is my one crazy idea for football. Every game on at the same time in round 23. Well, it's not crazy and it no, should happen, well, but it'll never happen. It's too well, sensible. It's, it's, that we all know. So it's it's funny, point. though. You could... <laughs> well, no, it's not that it's too sensible. It's, just, it's that the, uh, the dream is to have all nine games in separate... Um, but- it, it, it's yeah. available to be watched separately live on television. It's that, funny though, but having that said that, happen. not if we're running the show, you... Adam. Not if we're running the show, mate. Yeah. But we, the, <laughs> the one upside of floating fixtures, Dylan, is and and the the last round has been a floating fixture for ages, really. But um, they can structure it in a way mm. where there's not dead games at the very least, um, where every game matters or, or doesn't allow for um, and- nefarious sort of play to, to, to and, work out where you finish on the ladder. And somewhat uh, 30 years later for Melbourne supporters in round in the final round of the season, they got the most devastating round uh, final round result with that, uh, I think it was the uh, West Coast Adelaide game where the West Coast had to win by a certain margin. The, the live ladder. <laughs> I'm sorry to bring that up, but just in terms of, oh, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of context. And then the next day you got the letter from Melbourne asking to, it's time to buy your finals tickets. So um, anyway, yep. that, that, that's for a whole that's for a whole other podcast. Uh, 1987, <laughs> uh, we have mentioned the grand final, but the season continued on because, of course, it finished off. Now, Adam, you yeah. cover cricket in England. Um, and you go to this venue a lot, but do you associate it as one of the more iconic cricket grounds or do you associate the Oval as the place where the Battle of Britain was held? 
The Blues travelled to the Oval in London to play North Melbourne in a game they called the Battle of Britain. And it was not hard to see why. Londoners were treated to the best and worst of our game as the two sides took a distinct dislike to each other. While the game was listed as an exhibition match, the VFL was alarmed over the violence and subsequently seven players were charged and faced the tribunal. Alistair Clarkson and Donald MacDonald of North and Carlton trio David Rhys-Jones, Wayne Johnson and Jim Buckley were all suspended. It's funny you say that. Like, I'm at the Oval a lot and it's remarkable how often someone will raise the Battle of Britain with me there uh, from at the club at Surrey um, because it's well known. They've all seen it on YouTube and they all, they all know where it fits in uh, to Australian sporting history. Alistair Clarkson arrives as a, as a name too for all the wrong reasons, of course. Uh, but yeah, it's amazing that they devote far more time on electrifying 80s to the Battle of Britain than they do the grand final. So the grand final is dealt with in a couple of grabs and, you know, it being a, a scorching hot day at the MCG and Reese Jones um, blitzing Burton and, you know, they go on to win the flag and then we get perhaps twice as long on Stephen Kernahan being thrown into a bin and and, and Clarko, um, uh, uh, Clarko's king hit. That, that ends up generating more attention uh, on the film and look maybe appropriately so given uh, that we I'm sure now 30 plus years on spend more time thinking about if spend more someone, time thinking about the Battle of Britain than we ever would that grand final if there's someone you could trace down from the Battle of Britain is not the players or the fish of the officials well actually it's the usher uh, sitting on the boundary fence during the Battle of Britain as the <laughs> fight breaks out because it's obviously some local dude with some, you know, um, fluoro fluoro vest just looking like he's about to get into the fight or stepping away and just looking absolutely shocked. It's quite the contradiction because well, yeah. uh, to go back to Sensational 70s, when uh, Crackers knocks out Don Scott, there's, of course, the blue coat at VFL Park just clapping and just thinking, yeah, go get him. And then there's this bemused, polite Englishman uh, just, well, just looking shocked as to what's transpiring but- near that. Near, near yeah. the bin. For for all the ridiculousness and stupidity of that fight, that the fact that they were and albeit they were treated as just an end of season piss up for by, by most of the the clubs and players that went over, but the fact that we <laughs> we're playing a game in London is just kind of bizarre and would never have probably been thought of in the seventies. Um, these games are actually on YouTube now and and they were covered by Channel Ten. So you got Bruce and Eddie. Commentating yeah, that's right. What games. a commentary team! And if you, you, I've checked it out a little bit. the The commentary around those scenes is is quite interesting. Eddie, uh, sorry, Bruce in particular is very um, strong on that. This is the wrong thing, and and um, this is not what should be happening when we're trying to showcase the game. Yeah, and the yeah, that's right. So this intersects where electrifying eighties. I mentioned on episode one that. Good for football, the Rob Dixon um, that was made about Hawthorne's end of season trips from 87 through to 89. Um, of course, this isn't part of that because Hawthorne aren't in London at the time. I think from memory, Hawthorne are in Tokyo uh, yeah. playing their game against Essendon on a, on a baseball field. But you're right, they're all on Channel 10. And, um, and yeah, when they have talks in the past about bringing them back, um, which isn't entirely without merit, I suppose. Uh, there's been a while now. Um, but yeah, you're always going to see the footage from from uh, from the you might, you might call that one uh, Colo yeah, if it ever gets, I think it, comes back. <laughs> I reckon I'd be would de- be a decent show. I reckon yes. Yeah, so let's bring it back. Oh dear. All right. Well, 1987 was an insane year. So we're down to the home stretch of the electrifying 80s. 
Let's go to the bicentennial year, 1988. After a year on the sidelines, the big news to start the 1988 season was the return of Channel 7 to televise football. Football's back on 7, 7's back in action, and all I can say is we're glad they are. Thank you very much. Well, it's a big year, but keeping on the theme of television, boys, Channel 7 left us in 1987, but under new glorious new owner Christopher Scase, a bright future of football is here because, as Ross Oakley said, football's back on seven, seven's back in action, and by God, we're glad we, they are. The best thing about that starting point, and I don't, I don't know if you actually see it on the footage, but there is extended footage, is that Sandy Roberts is hosting that in a white dinner suit um, jacket. It's, it's spectacular. But I've heard the story told about that Channel 7 coming back, which was all about Christopher Scase had bought Channel 7. For all that Scase ends up being, at that moment in time, he's someone who rode into town to save Channel 7 and I'm bringing back the footy. Here's, uh, you know, VFL, here's the money that maybe not have, was the real money. But anyway, um, the, and it lifted it to uh, a whole other level. It's almost like broadcasting went a bit Hollywood. I've heard there's, there's this good podcast series that Peter Donegan did a few years back with a whole bunch of sporting names, but but he interviewed the late Drew Morfitt. He interviewed, um, I think he interviewed Dennis and he interviewed Sandy. And a lot of them touched on that point that all of a sudden they were getting limos to airports. They were, they were basically, you know, they became, he wanted, Scase wanted them to be superstars the the channel 7 commentary team was with stars and and there's probably some other stories that i've heard along the way that i won't repeat about um <laughs> about some of the you know the antics of when you know because beforehand they were just turning up to the mcg to to broadcast on a saturday and that was it but all of a sudden they, now they were globetrotting across australia to, to uh to commentate the matches you mentioned the channel seven lavish launch uh that has ross oakley doing the spiel about sevens back in action we're glad to have it back the the story from channel seven news about them getting the football back is on youtube and it's it's brilliant because i think it's like jackie love and mickey uh ricky may performing there's shots of darren hinch looking bemused um that, that you are right all the commentators are coming out in limos and there's a there's a there's a grab of christopher scase um talking on behalf of the seven network and he's like um i think it's something along the lines of you know channel seven's got the football and football's a family sport played by families and, and youngsters and we want to be part and of it as far as chairman christopher scase is concerned seven will be bringing football back to the people the roots of uh, football are that it's a family sport it's a sport uh, played by uh, youngsters and uh, young adults and watched by older adults and that's the origin of the sport and i think that it's very important it's very similar to like the um the bloke from the cracker factory in the simpsons firing kirk van helton because it's you know crackers are a family food happy families crackers are a family food happy families maybe single people eat crackers we don't know frankly we don't want to know it's a market we can do without so that's it. After 20 years, so long. Good luck. I don't recall saying. We don't good know luck. if single people uh, <laughs> eat crackers. Quite frankly, it's a market we can do without. 
the uh, the um, the first European holiday we're intending on taking once COVID's over is to Mallorca, <laughs> and I tell you what, I'll be making scacy gags for the are whole time bring, we're there. Are you going to bring a little asthma um, puffer just yeah. to make sure you you, you, you blend in? Yeah, or, I might. Or I'll try and find or, him. Try and find him. Or, or why don't you somewhere. don't go to Mallorca but go to Barcelona and pretend to look for scace just like today tonight did? <laughs> <laughs> Um, a few Hawthorne bits yeah. here off the top. I mentioned why the night grand final means so much to Hawthorne. That's how they, on the first step, that is. That's how they weave in uh, Alan Joyce taking over from Alan Jeans. But they don't explain why. I mean, Alan Jeans is, by this stage, a giant of Victorian and Australian football. Um, and they just kind of gloss over the fact that he's been replaced. I suppose if, you, um, if, you, if you're watching it in 89, you probably know that the mm. Jeans was out. Um, with that aneurysm uh, out of 88, and that's why Alan Joyce takes over. But The Hawks showed all their experience in a thrilling finish and gave new coach Alan Joyce a successful start after he was called in to replace Alan Jeans, who was forced to take a year off football. All's well that ends well. Back to, in, in terms of the football action that we do see um, in 1988, yeah, yeah, we see Gary Ablett Sr. making Richmond his bunnies, and that will continue for the next probably eight years. Um there's another bit of iconic footage, or uh, no, shambolic footage, I should say, as was the style at the time. And I want to bring your attention to Simon Beasley trying to kick the goal <laughs> after the siren for Footscray yeah. against the Brisbane Bears at Carrara. Footscray's Simon Beasley found more than the usual quota of men on the mark when he lined up for this kick against the Brisbane Bears in round seven. He comes in now, steadying his approach. He falters. No doubt the crowd getting in his way. And it's going to make it tough. It's going to make it tough for the yeah. goal umpire. How could he make a decision? Well, he's got it. Here's the kick. Four premiership points are riding on it. I think he's missed it. One, One point. point. The Bears have done it. Um, let's just say that the second siren rule uh, did not apply at that venue at the time. <laughs> There's... Well, this was the year that Kappa yep. goes to the Bears after kicking the tongue with the Swans. So suddenly, all of that energy that was around Sydney in 86 and 87, some of it does sort of transfer out. to Brisbane yeah. as... Yeah, and it goes and it goes up to Carrara. And, um, and yeah, the Beasley shot after the siren. People everywhere. I think Malcolm Blight on special comments, his one year um, as a television commentator before he um, moves to Geelong. He does a great job too, by the way. Sounds... In 88... I actually saw a clip that Rhett Bartlett posted earlier today um, that had that had Blighty on specials in '88, and he sounds exactly now on radio as he did um, then as a as a commentator. But yeah, I mean, people. I mean, how? I mean, we had that at the very start of the show, mm. Dylan, with Kerry Good in the 1980 night grand final. But at least he was able to get his kick away before everyone. I mean, uh, talk about Jimmy Stein's crossing the mark. They they were standing a couple of meters in front of him as yeah, there's he took no stand rule there. There's a there's a great um, if you look at it closely, there's a Footscray player literally grabbing a bloke by the throat and throwing him throwing him aside because he's like trying to put off Beasley right in front of where he wants to kick. And um, and the other iconic moment is when he misses it, and then everyone just goes nuts and runs on the field. There's a guy like he's dressed as a cowboy, and I. Still don't know why he would be dressed like. Why would you turn up to the footy in 1988 dressed in, in a Gold full Coast? cowboy kit, and and he's running along the field in a cowboy kit? Just have a look at it. 
It's that, the Gold Coast, mate. Where else would you? Where else? I, 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 in fact, if you're not going to Carrara dressed up as a cowboy, you're not going to Carrara. To be fair, that's pretty on brand. <laughs> if you're going to the football in that part of the world, uh, to be fair, and it's pretty much like that if you go to a Gold Coast Suns game these days. To be perfectly honest, they, they shouldn't have been the Suns. They should have been the Cowboys. Um. In terms of more shambolic, it's it's off-field and iconic vision. 1988 also highlights that uh, the then reigning Brownlow medalist, Tony Lockett, uh, injures his knee and uh, goes to hospital, <laughs> to which uh, poor old Peter Donegan from Channel 7 and a young Edward Maguire from Channel 10 just uh, knock on the door. And uh, uh, Plugger is uh, very hospitable, should we say. There was more drama to follow when Lockett hobbled into hospital to have his ankle checked unaware television news crews were on his trail. After taking a tumble, an obviously distressed Lockett took out his frustration hurling his crutches like toothpicks in a bid to maintain his privacy. When things cooled down, his father Howard provided an explanation. Sorry about that. Uh, I hope you all understand, you know, the pressure we've been under. And... Yeah, well, he, he, he fought, he's not happy with being followed and, and I think... I think Eddie might have been leading the way on this one, uh, and um, he then he falls over. <laughs> he falls over on his crutches and grabs his crutches and throws them out the door at at Eddie and whoever other cameras are there. Um, it's it's probably one of the first media media moments in footy that that, that sort of off field media moment in footy that became really famous. Yeah, after they tried to use the magic spray on Plugger's ankle after he you know. Torn it apart in the game itself. A bit of magic spray will do the trick again. Very 1988. Um, I also like that Plugger's old man's rolled out to do the press conference afterwards to do the apology. Uh, sorry about that. Plugger's old man being one of the, the footy dads that... I, mean, I don't think I know a lot about many footballers' dads who didn't play top flight, that is. But we know a lot about Plugger's dad over the years and what he achieved in, in Ballarat. And there he was, apologising. He was called Plugger son, too, wasn't he? Pigging the crutches... Yeah, that's, that's how Plugger got his name after his dad. But yeah, th- throwing the crutches like toothpicks, as they say in the in the uh, in the script. Um, there isn't really a marks montage in 1988, but there's one standout mark, which you know is a iconic image, iconic mark. Um, probably in the top ten is of course Stephen Silvani yep. uh, over Collingwood, and uh, it's called by called brilliantly by Drew Morford, which uh-huh. I think is his first year at Channel. Yeah, he would there be finally he's made the. Uh, trip over to Channel 7. I think that Drew Morford said he was up there for a week. Carlton Stephen Silvani took the mark of the year with this incredible leap in round 14. Oh, what a mark. He was up there That's for a week. But there- was it voted that was it voted uh, have to Gilly, be you remember this back in 96 when they had the, had the um they had the uh the um the the various different polls for the greatest moments in the history of the game. I'm fairly sure that got voted the best mark well, ever. I, I, I think, think Sean, Smith. Sean, Sean Smith got the got probably had the nod and a bit of recency bias probably as well. But I think there's the sauce right. mark is – and there's, there's great photos of the sauce mark too from memory, which really um, – you know, yeah, there was immortalise a, it as well. There was a beautiful artwork of it in North Carlton for a time. It, it's faded out, but uh, and one of the old terrace houses uh, somewhere in North Carlton, there was this just beautiful cutout of the um, sauce mark 
against Collingwood in 88. It was oh, it was actually spectacular. It's a real shame it's not there anymore, but it, that, that just encapsulated that image. Mm. And in the black and white photo as well, it, it, it was incredibly, mm. it was it was brilliant straight art. Um, it stands out because I, I lived near it for a long time. Mm. Um, mm. So I, I don't think it's there anymore, but, um, you know, that mark has been immortalised. And I think if you mention Sauce's mark, anyone listening to it, you don't need a description. It's already in your head. It's a bit like um, the, the Dermot Billy Duckworth yeah. kiss. There were few characters to rival Dermot Brereton and Bill Duckworth during the 80s. And in round 18, they decided to get to know each other a little more intimately. Yeah, you wouldn't like to meet either of them in the dark night and be unfriendly. Not to say much more than that, and footy people know exactly what you're talking about. Um, of course, Derby was furious after having uh, had um, had the, uh, the, well, the, the ball taken away from Dunstall uh, in the goal square. And I think from memory... Um, Dunster was nearing 100 in that game as well, which added to the annoyance and the frustration from Burton as he runs through the huddle and belts five blokes and ends up the other side after the kiss with Billy Duckworth happening at the start of that sequence. I mean, again. But as usual, Burton wanted the last word. During the three-quarter time break, took a shortcut, leaving his unique stamp on the game. Just, I think it's a rant, just a generic home and away game would, would have so many things happen in the space of five minutes. It reinforced what a presence Dermy was in 88. There's that um, 60 Minutes uh, interview that Derm does that year, which, again, if we're talking about moments where Dermy goes from being footballer to superstar celebrity, I think being featured on national television on 60 Minutes is definitely yes, part of that. Uh, and this incident, this episode, he's right in the... Th- right and, if you want a comprehensive, and if you want a comprehensive breakdown of Dermot Burden's kiss, huddle run-in and 60 Minutes interview, may we suggest episode six of the Australian Football Video <laughs> Film Festival, Dermot Burden's Hits and Memories with myself and Tony Wilson, with a video uploaded by Gilly VHS uh, on YouTube. So thank you for that. Thank you for your contribution. There, Gilly. I wonder who that was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. sounds like a very nice. Sounds like a top bloke. Uh, one of one of the YouTube heroes uh, that uh, this show thrives on. So, uh, a thank you the, to those. The, the other, you're the say, other thing Gilly. with Derm is, is, I was going to say, the other thing with Derm is he also has an imitator because Dunstall kicks a hundred, and uh, Colo, I'm sure you're aware of this. When he kicks a hundred um, on on the electrifiers in '88, the first bloke that runs out is a supporter with Dermy hair. And twenty three on his back, in je- wearing jeans, and he and he he doesn't really look like Dermy, but he's clearly Dermy is his hero because he's got the same head as Dermy. He's wearing a, a mm-hmm. number on his back, runs in and gets to Dunstall before anyone else does from behind the goals. Yes, yes, yes. That, that's uh, and that's replicated in two thousand and eight when one of the kids jumps over the fence before Buddy slots it. Uh, <laughs> as in, as the ball is leaving Buddy's boot, um, there's a guy who's already made it. 10 metres out to the middle of Docklands and, and reaches Buddy before anybody. But yeah, Dunstall's 100 against Fitzroy, the first uh, since Peter Hudson to hit three figures for Hawthorne. Hawthorne had not had a century goal kicker since the halcyon days of Peter Hudson. But Jason Dunstall was the Hawks' new goal-kicking machine. He notched his century in round 19 against Fitzroy, and Hawthorne fans applauded the feat in the traditional manner. The first the- six times uh, that he achieves that, I was at all of them bar... I, th- I used to think I was at all of them, but I wasn't. I, I missed 1992, um, where that was at Cadenia Park, the day that um, Gary Ablett was playing on him, which just seems... It's so so of the time, isn't it, that Malcolm Blight would see fit to play Gary Ablett on Jason Dunstall. But anyway. Uh, but yeah, that, that was a that, this was the year when Hawthorne were just utterly unstoppable. And um, whether it was uh, you know, through the home and away season... Uh, through the finals s- series as well, and then the grand final when they win by 96 points. I mean, this is 
when they when they talk about great Hawthorne teams of that generation, all of the players always point at nineteen eighty eight is when they were they knew they couldn't lose. They're at their most dominant. I know and Melbourne. Sadly, cops, I know Melbourne yeah. cops are pantsing in the eighty eight grand final so much that Hawthorne knew that they were had it in the bag that they were prepared to, um, you know, handball tip top loaves of bread uh, during the lap, lap of honor of eighty eight. <laughs> but um, in terms of the D's, uh, Shannon. Do you have many mem- memories of the 1988 elimination final? Uh, uh, look, I certainly... Gary Lyon put the Demons ahead in the dying minutes. But they had to withstand one last rally by the Eagles. And with 10 seconds remaining, Murray Renstead had the chance to pinch the game. Alas, his shot was offline. The Demons and their fans lived to fight another final. I wasn't there, but I certainly remember when it happened. And um, Melbourne, Melbourne at that period was sort of this weird team in that they were very tenacious in that they sort of they'd win games they had to win. They could be really ordinary, but then they'd that sort of were pretty gritty when it when it mattered, and that was a, a game they were expected to win against West Coast in their first ever final. Um, but West Coast really took it up to them all day, and. It's only a Gary Lyon snap with a sort of a minute to go that that gets them in front, and even then, West Coast almost pinch it on the siren. Um, but Murray, the famous Murray Renstead, missed missed Murray the goal Renstead. from about 50, 40 meters out. But um, yeah, the, the Hawks were just so far and away the best team that that season, and, and the D's get to the grand final. They win win two more finals and and get there, which was a surprise in itself. But um, there was a big, there was a thing at that point that teams that played in the elimination final and made it through to the grand final um, w- was a great effort. But you were going to get done on grand final day because you you couldn't keep that up. And yeah, Melbourne. Unluckily, in my lifetime of supporting Melbourne, we've made the grand final twice, and I reckon in those two years we've come up against possibly the two best sides <laughs> for, of yeah. one two one season best sides you'd ever see: Hawthorne '88, Essendon '2000. Yeah, the Melbourne '88 elimination final win is almost redemption, if you like, mm. for '87 uh, in the prelim. Same ground, similar circumstances. You know, sort of uh, replace Mary Renstead with. Uh, with uh, Simon Eichold and or, or however you Tony want to Campbell, Graham Yates, all of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, yes, that's right. There are a number of uh, players that could have won the game for Melbourne in '87, um, but yeah, they're overwhelmed by Grand Final Day. And then, in, yeah, Dylan, you, you talk about the the loaves of bread after the game, but I mean, you know, Dermy in the yellow boots after half time, uh, the banana he kicks in the second quarter to put us what <laughs> nine goals up halfway through the second term. Um, at halftime of that grand final, uh, it happened to be the uh, the 100 metres final of the uh, Seoul Olympics. And we, of course, know that's, as, as per the book, the dirtiest race that was ever run. But yeah, if I, I wish that had have been integrated into this somehow, that it was being played alongside the Seoul Olympics when <laughs> Ben Johnson runs his uh, 9.83, heavily drug-affected 9.83. And I think all eight runners in that race eventually had run-ins with the doping authorities at some stage. But yes, that, that was the uh, all on the same afternoon. In fact, they showed it on the big screen at the G at halftime. They showed... I wasn't there. Gilly, no, were you there at the grand there. final? No, no. Yeah, they, they showed the 100 metres final on the MCG scoreboard at halftime of the 88 grand final. Speaking of Melbourne, and I don't mean to just be like, oh, let's pick on Melbourne's history here, but did it also hurt for Melbourne fans that Jared Healy won the Brownlow that year? 
Sydney Swans ruck rover Gerard Healy had proved to be the outstanding player of 1988. While the Swans missed the finals, there was some consolation when Healy won the Brownlow medal. Or were they well, delighted the, that a champion got his just desserts? Well, it's, it's a funny one in that there's probably some talk at the time because at that point of him winning the Brownlow, his brother is the captain, his lesser profile brother is captaining Melbourne in the grand final on that weekend. And there's sort of a lot of discussion of, well, two, two points, whether if Jared Healy had a state at Melbourne, imagine... You know, would Jared Healy be captaining Melbourne into a grand final, and would he prefer that than a Brownlow? Um, or, or you know, what what's the sort of the bigger achievement by the family? But you know, obviously a big, a big, um, a big week for both of the Healys. Uh, probably a better week for Jared. Question, question for you on the Healys. Question for you on the Healys, Skilly. When did he go from being Gerard Healy to Jared Healy? What <laughs> year did he? Because he was Gerard Healy. He was Gerard Healy <laughs> until a point in time. Can you can you identify uh, what it was being? I, I, I don't know when when that changed. I, I kind of get the sense that when he was at Sydney, he was Gerard Healy. But but I right. I don't right. I think some people probably still call him Gerard. Gerard. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but my my memory was him as as it was a. Jared, <laughs> as he is today. Yeah, it's like, it, it, yeah, it's like when did it, when did he stop being Alex Downer and when did he become Alexander <laughs> yeah. Downer? Same kind of, same kind of. the bow to make there. Anyway, first Alexander Downer reference we've had on this podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Downer and Healy. <laughs> I'm here to tell you about the fantastic Name the Game series from Australian Football Video. Now there's over 200 games available, including final series, state games, night premierships and the best home and away matches of the 91 and 92 seasons. Not just the highlights, not just the last quarter, but a hundred minutes of top footy action. So pick up your free catalogue at any Brasher store. And remember, footy brings out the best in a person. Let me tell you about the terrific range at you know where, leaguetees.com.au. Retro footy gear for retro footy fans. The best fashion in town. And I have been looking at the League Tees uh, shop. And boy, oh boy, there is just some absolutely magnificent bits of fashion, particularly the VFA range. You've got to check that out. There's the footy range with all your favorite teams, every team, all the real teams, none of those new fancy teams covered and there's even some basketball there's even state leagues like your sandful and uh there's even the rugby league so if you fancy a bit of the rugby league there's a terrific range league tees has it all and they are the official partners of the australian football video film festival and uh i i wear a league t-shirt basically every single day um i went to a wedding the other week wore a league t-shirt was the best dressed in the whole thing the bride even complimented me on me wearing uh the uh, watch the winners every sunday at five o'clock uh t-shirt that anthony made it's it's just a beauty um what are you doing right now are you listening to this on a phone are you near a phone are you near the, a computer are you just near anywhere with internet okay what you're gonna do is open up your browser, punch in leaguetees.com.au, 
get whatever spending mechanism they accept and just buy yourself a t-shirt, a hoodie, a badge, whatever. They've got it. You want one now. You need to boost your wardrobe with the best footy fashion in town, and that is leagetees.com.au. I repeat, leagetees.com.au. Proud partners of the Australian Football Video Film Festival. <laughs> We've gotten so far. We're going to finish off with a bang. Uh, we're going to a significant year, and it's quite a great year. Let's have a look at the final year of the electrifying 80s, 1989. Football in February was again a familiar theme, and the 1989 night series saw Hawthorne bow out in unusual circumstances against the West Coast Eagles. The scores were... Uh, Shambolic things are all the rage during the 1980s, and uh, we get the start of 1989 with a Hawks versus West Coast Panasonic Cup game because of bizarre rule uh, in the uh, pre-season series, which didn't allow for draws. The scores were tied at the end of normal time, and both sides kept playing until the first score won the game. So earlier in the decade, when the sprinkler comes on at VFL Park uh, during uh, one of these games, uh, which uh, Subiaco are involved in, and, and a decade ends with, uh, yeah, I, I suppose you would call it golden point or a silver point or whatever it was in, in, in association football terms. But um, yeah, it wasn't often that Hawthorne wouldn't make it through to the end of the night comp, but 89 knocked out in the first round. I was no, say, I, can't, I can't remember why the reason, whether there'd been a draw the year before or whatever, but the, the thing um, about... That one is, it's the second, uh, if you look at the, the celebration of the point, it's the second most bizarre thing that Paul Pios was involved with at VFL Park. <laughs> um, and, and a little... Friend of the greatest season that um, was Paul Pios. A little, little tidbit about uh, that particular Hawthorne West Coast game played in February 1989, the 25th of February. 1989. That was actually the day I was born. And oh. apparently, oh, apparently, deals. I have been told that um, I was alert and awake that night, in which uh, the old man was actually watching uh, this particular <laughs> yes. match of football, and I was looking at the screen. Apparently, so uh, so you you would have heard, you would have heard the the iconic commentary of Nick score wins, and that's the ball game. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a sl- could have been we, we've, got a, we've got an eight hour old infant child me uh, watching the uh, shambolic ending to a Panasonic Cup game between Hawthorne and West Coast and now look at me 32 years later doing retro uh, doing uh, nostalgia podcasts about uh, the video featuring it how good I'm a big one for a grand. What do they say? I'm a big one for a grand. What do they say? You go, Colin. Oh, I'm a big one for a grand final replay, but. I kind of don't mind the golden point and celebrating a point. I don't mind it at all. And as for your presence or or, or, uh, or your alertness to it, start as you mean to go on, as they say. You're watching some preseason game uh, in the maternity ward. Feels well. Put it this way: um, you haven't you haven't moved far from that in the 32 years that have followed. <laughs> 
Uh, I love you for say, it. Nothing's changed since. So there you go. A little, little bit of a tidbit there. So <laughs> no, I remember it well. Remember it well. Um, in terms of the... Hey, and speaking of the Panasonic Cup, the 1989 Grand Final. No, not your one, Adam. Not that one. The no, the main one. Cup. Yeah, the, the, the memorable the one. Counts. Yeah. And it was another triumph at night for Melbourne when they defeated Geelong in a close, hard-fought final. It's, it's, it's the, yeah, well, I suppose it's the only, it's the, the only Melbourne Premiership I watched from start to finish as it happened. At the moment, I've got, oh I've got dreams ahead of me, perhaps. But uh, no, I did watch that on TV from start to finish. I was going to go to it, but I didn't because I was scared we were going to lose. And I was going with my mate who back for Geelong, and Waverley seemed a long way if we if we were going to lose. But I um I watched it watched it on TV and uh, enjoyed it thoroughly. Now, to get to the actual season itself, because I reckon that's the most pre-season we see uh, out of all the years of the um, electrifying 80s, at 89, probably because they just did 89 on a whim because that was the year mm. that um, the actual uh, mm. production was made. But um, we actually get into the actual season itself and there are two standout home and away matches that always get talked about, and rightly so. And the first one is that mm. St Kilda-Carlton game at Moorabbin, which Tony Lockett just wins a game off his own boot. And St Kilda and Carlton were locked in a thrilling battle at Moorabbin in round two. But for the entire game, Tony Lockett had been standing in the way of the Blues, who held a two-point margin late in the final term. When he took this mark with less than a minute to go, Lockett had already booted nine of St Kilda's 12 goals, but his 10th clinched the game for the Saints. 43 seconds left on the clock. Possibly the last chance for St Kilda. They trail by two points. Tony Lockett. If you want a picture of the scenes that Moorabbin was and stood for and, you know, what the Saints' culture was at the time, it would be that game. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I mean, the, 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 the sad thing is is that Plugger in those days rarely got a, you got a full season out of him. That was that was one of the, his um, his problems in that point in time. But when he got on the field, he did things like that. And and Carlton were um, coming off a third place, so it was a huge upset, really, even at Moorabbin for the Saints to, to beat them. But um, I think uh, there's even there's a ridiculousness in that Plugger kicks ten of twelve and didn't get the three votes. I think. Um, Brett, Brett, ba- Brett Bowie got the three votes that day and he had like 18 touches. Like, ridiculous. <laughs> and the other match too, the other home and away match from the 89 season, mm. and I've the, I've watched this game in full um, and I reckon it's one of the most aesthetically pleasing games of football you will ever see um, was now a lot of... I know a lot gets said about the grand final between these two teams, but the round six match... Uh, between Hawthorne and Geelong at Prince's Park. Um, I don't think it actually gets spoken about enough in terms of maybe because of the grand final that followed afterwards, but in terms of a pure aesthetically pleasing game of Australian rules football, that is as good as it gets. One of the best matches of the decade was the Hawthorne-Geelong clash at Prince's Park in round six. And the Cats, with Gary Ablett running hot, bolted to a 49-point lead at halftime. But few sides would have been capable of mounting a comeback like Hawthorne. And the Hawks climbed off the floor to snatch an eight-point victory. 
Yeah, like, so I don't know anymore how much of this I remember as a five-year-old boy and how much of it. Well, I would have been mm. four, actually. So so probably not very much at all. But Well, well Adam, um, if I, I can recall Panasonic Cup and- games eight hours old as an infant, I reckon <laughs> you can do four. <laughs> Well, I, I definitely remember being there and running up and down the, 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 the Hawthorne stand. I know exactly where we were sitting in the Hawthorne stand that day um, on the wing there, uh, or half-forward flank, I suppose it was. And, yeah, the comeback, 49 points down. I mean, famously, um, James Morrissey, uh, Gary Ayres, um being thrown into the middle and James Morrissey being so influential in the second half. But Gavin Exel kicking nine, who wasn't really a, a big part of the story around the 89 grand final, really, but... Um, was was uh, very influential there in that game, and Hawthorne don't just haul them in; they're up by three and a half goals deep into the last quarter, and then Geelong kick a couple late, and it's an eight point margin all told. But yeah, it absolutely stands up now when you go back and look at those highlights. It, it was, and Tony Wilson does a wonderful job explaining in his book last year, nineteen eighty nine, the great grand final, um, that. Uh, the, this is the this is the template for it really high scoring um, end-to-end stuff um, to extremely fit and talented and skillful teams who only know one mode and that's to score heavily uh, and that's why they were such great adversaries at the time and ultimately why the 89 grand final was such a classic and it, and it's and it's all set up here and of course the the Burton Yates part one where where Derm, you know speaks fairly freely about um, what he did when he booted Yates in the nuts, or sort of, sorry, need need him in the nuts, I should say, um, which uh, which caused uh, you know caused him to did he miss a state of origin Yates as a consequence of that something yeah. like that it, it it took a massive toll on him so there there was context to the square up at the start of the '89 Grand Final as well. I have vivid memories of as most Saturdays during my childhood was being at the local footy and you would hear someone in what they. Well, let's call it a transistor, um, where, where people would have a transistor radio and you would be at the local footy watching the game, but then you'd be asking the scores from the league matches, as you would call them. What's the score in the league matches? Yes. And that day, um, there's this this amazement of everyone at the local footy that Geelong's that far up? Oh, hang on. They're, they're 49 points up at half time, sort of thing. And then in the second half, the scores kept coming through <laughs> for the rest of the day about Hawthorne coming back and you know certainly it it was it was one of those games that just stopped stopped people in their tracks and it might sound weird but when you watch it back it doesn't feel like they're hauling down a huge deficit it just feels like in in much the same way with Geelong in in the grand final it doesn't feel like they're coming back from six and Mm. a half goals down It, it just feels like that's the natural rhythm of the game whereas you watch the I don't know, another massive Hawthorne comeback, the 99 game against St Kilda, which was, I think it was, might have been 52 points, something like that. That does feel like they're climbing mm. this huge mountain. This just feels like, because of the nature of footy in that era where it was end-to-end, that a goal was being kicked every couple of minutes and it didn't feel like it was unusual, yeah. which I guess is part of the magic really, isn't it, of that era where there was, there was such high-scoring games. We really get to say, I guess from that Hawthorne-Geelong game, we really see what Malcolm Blight and Gary Ablett of Gary Ablett Sr. reaching his full potential. Um, we go straight into that Hawthorne-Geelong game at Princess Park into Ablett kicking another big bag against Richmond 14. Uh, and what more well, can no, you that say? That does, that's, that's the Collingwood, Collingwood game. So then we get it's into the Collingwood yeah. game, of course, which is best summed up by Sandy Roberts, which is he shoots towards goal. What more can you say? Again, Ablett's sheer brilliance left everyone, commentators included, speechless. Oh, he's a light, Gary Ablett, 
Johnson at work. He shoots towards Val. What more can you say? I think the Richmond the Richmond commentary is the here's the magician. Yeah, of the, no, the with... Richmond game's not covered on television. Yeah, the, the no, classic the one with the game, Richmond. The Richmond it... game was a was, oh, wasn't right. covered on TV. Yeah, the classic one with Richmond is it, 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 when people talk about it that he he was playing on he kicked fourteen from the wing, which mm. is probably a little bit disingenuous that he, he kicked fourteen goals from the wing. But apparently he started on the wing and was basically just roaming from the wing, then running into the forward line and doing bits and pieces. But he he sort of he wasn't playing full forward to kick fourteen goals, which is you know it's 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 it's, it's can only be explained as Ablett. To go back to another iconic 1980s player, and I actually don't think, surprisingly, Electrifying 80s doesn't feature Warwick Capper as much as you think it would. <laughs> um, but they do feature his probably one and only highlight at the Brisbane Bears, in which, again, this was a game that wasn't actually covered on television, and you can tell that it's just news camera footage of mm. um, Capper kicking a goal after the siren uh, to for the Bears to beat Carlton at Princess Park, in which... Uh, uh, Wolsey gets the arse as uh, Carlton coach and I think he comes back to coach the Bears a couple of years later. The repercussions of Warwick Kappa's last-minute mark and goal were felt by Carlton coach Robert Walls, who found himself dumped in favour of Alex Jeselinko after the Blues lost to the Bears in round 10. Yeah, that's right. It was it was a huge story at the time and, uh, and it, yeah, just at that point when Kappa was sort of fading from relevance, he has that that big moment. It's interesting what what doesn't get covered, yeah. isn't it? So state of origin, some incredible state of origin games through the eighties at Football Park. They're always at Football Park, um, and some, of course, at, um, at WACA ground and Subiaco yeah. as well. The Subiaco game, and many people say that nineteen eighty six game, uh, yeah, was one of the greatest games ever played. Yeah, in terms of the people who are on the field that day, uh, it's an astonishing game of football. And Victoria um, come back in in the final term. And um, I remember talking to, and this is the name drop, talking to Dermy about that once. And he said that um, he watched himself and thought for the first quarter and a half, first two quarters, he was kind of just going. And then when it got willing in the final term, he took seven contested marks and nearly got them home. But of course, it was Bacchanara at the end. Just superb football, the best you could want. But then press fast forward to 89. It's the... 90,000 people at the G. Um, in fact, we tr- my dad and I tried to work it out a couple of years ago. We think that might have been my first football game. When South Australia came to the MCG on July 1, interstate football had finally returned to Victoria. The reputation of the South Australians as the number one football power was on the line. Quite, there might have been one earlier in the season where Hawthorne played, but we're pretty sure... Um, the, the state of origin was it. So we got there very early. I don't know who was playing beforehand, but there was mm. a curtain raiser. Um, and we were at the very top of the Olympic stand. And of course, Victoria go on to win by 15 goals. And there's the horrible uh, Tony Hall, uh, Andy Collins incident, which is featured in that game. But yeah, Dunstall, Lockett, Burton occupying the same 50 metre arc. And again, yeah. in the yellow boots and, and, and uh, Lockett and Dunstall running a mark and the teamwork between the two. But with Jason Dunstall and Tony Lockett part of a formidable forward lineup, the South Australian defence was powerless as 91,000 fans soaked up Victoria's 86 point win. 4 1, Victoria, South Australia, one goal, two. The Vicks in attack, Lockett to Dunstall. Oh, he's gone! 
mean, there's been a lot said about it and a lot written about it, but it's interesting they pick that as the state of origin game, but to blow out rather than, say, Kernahan kicking 10 in 84, which again is another classic at Football Park and well, I, a, I, a string of those games which, which were the best of state of origin. I went to that, that 89 game as well, mate, and um, my, my, memory, my memory of it is that, I mean, it was stars everywhere for Victoria, but there were some South Australian supporters near where we were sitting and my uh, Dermy had the ball in the uh, on the boundary in the pocket in the in the fluorescent boots and um, my dad got up and said yelled out kick a check side Dermy because check side was the South Australian term for, for yeah, a banana yeah. and he did and he kicked a goal so yeah, that was my memory of, yeah. of the that's that state of origin day which was a just a huge day Gilly, do you reckon that there was something to there was something to I mean state of origin was wonderful for people like us yep. I suppose who who were just old enough to get the tail end of it, I suppose. But do you, do you remember, do you, you're a couple of years my, older than me, in 89, it, it, watching the tape back, it feels like all of Victoria was with this extraordinary forward line. And I mean, partisan loyalties, which became more a part of it in the 90s in terms of who would sit out of games and mm. made themselves unavailable and all the rest of it. This felt like you went to watch Victoria play. It was a massive deal. There'd been a long time since they played at the G and people were bloody excited to barrack for these superstars, including rivals from other clubs. Well, there hadn't been a state game basically in Victoria for 10 years. Like that, that just hadn't hadn't yeah, been played. Yeah. So I think what had happened is there'd been, and look, there might be reasons why that it, it wasn't. It didn't actually draw that greater crowds when it was played in Victoria then, and later on it didn't draw that greater crowds later on. But all through the eighties, you you basically had these five or six years from let's say eighty four ish onwards, where Victoria had oh, look they had won a couple of games, but they had been beaten in most games. Like that, you'd go over to South Australia and you'd lose by a point. You'd go mm. over to WA and you'd lose by kick, the last kick of the day. All fantastic games of footy, but Victoria was on the losing side of it. And I rem- remember the last, um, well, actually, it's not the last one, but there was a there was a, car- a like a proper carnival in 1988 preseason where all the teams played, all the states played, and again Victoria got done in the final by South Australia. So there was a legitimate feeling that. that We've been watching for the last six or seven years. Victoria actually get done every week at every most games in state of origin, and you know bragging rights were that South Australia was better than Victoria, you know, as a footy state because they kept beating us. So I think there was a bit of that that the the fervor was around. Well, let's see if we can win at home, and and that went from the players that played, the crowd, everything sort of culminated in that day. Finals 89, we see some terrific battles. And of course, the electrifying 80s was part of the 1989 final series coverage uh, from Channel 7. And, and it was the final year of the VFL. We're still yet to mention that that is the last year that the competition is known as the Victorian Football League before the uh, AFL in 1990. But we see some terrific football. Um, the Cats feed Deeds... Uh, semi-final is a bit, you know, again, Ablett at his best. Um, it, 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 I know Hawthorne won that grand final and won it in spectacular style, but Gary Ablett Senior's final series in 1989 is something to truly behold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, without stealing Hawthorne's fun, thunder, when I think of 1989, I think of Gary Ablett <laughs> in a lot of that? ways. Yeah, not, yeah. 
and not unreasonably. I mean, it is. It, it is the you know if you're looking at um, a series of games next to each other, uh, it's hard to dispute the fact that it, it is the best final series that one player's ever stitched together. And it just took him to that next level, didn't it? I mean, you know, everybody knew that Applet was a star, but th- then he was the star. He was the best, the best player in the comp. And little did we know, he'd, he'd formally moved to full forward a couple of years later and rattle off the better part of 500 goals in four years or whatever it worked out to be. So, um, yeah, it was it was a turning point for him in terms of what he was capable of doing. Um, and look, against a Hawthorne team that gets to the grand final, in that kind of nick, we talked briefly on the previous ep about the the, the Brewert and shirt front of Vanderhaar. I mean, they go on to mm. pump Essendon after being down at quarter time, and you're thinking mm. this Hawthorne team have lost four games in two years up against Geelong, who, who haven't fired a shot since 1963 on on the final day in September. Uh, and you you even with the context of round six. I think a lot of people, Gilly, would have gone into the week thinking they're a decent chance to annihilate Geelong here. Um, yeah. of course, and, that, and of course, that couldn't happen because you can't annihilate a team that's got Gary Ablett there. Not 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 in not in that kind of form. Well, I think I think the the preliminary final, like you, you, the, the, it's quite a funny final series in the in that Geelong got thrashed by Essendon in the first final. So Geelong was sort of ah, they're pretenders. They're not. They're not right. They come. They they knock over Melbourne easily. Ablett plays really well. And then the prelim, when I, I would suggest that if if Essendon weren't favourites, though, it was it was line ball, and they beat they beat them by ninety four points. Ablett's highlights, I think, in the as good as Ablett's highlights are in the grand final, I think his highlights in the prelim are even better. And so magical, he occasionally left the commentators bemused. And then inspired as he booted eight, and the Cats won by 94 points. Ablett decides to run down towards the 50. Goes long, it's bending back. That is a magnificent goal. Stoneham behind the back. Ablett in the pocket. Don't tell me. I don't believe it. Towards centre wing, hocking with great courage. Goes back, takes the mark, plays on. Shrugs off the tackle from Thompson. Feeds the hand pass to Bairstow. Bairstow goes down towards half-forward. Ablett! That's a party trick, not a mark. And I think off the back of that, there was this thought, well, if anyone, if anyone's ever going to beat Hawthorne, it'll be this bloke because he was doing the most ridiculous thing. So there was this, this thing that had built up that, well, they've got Ablett, so you, that, they, they may do it. They may be a chance. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say on, on that, I suppose, is that it, we're coming towards the end of the Final Five era and what a wonderful <laughs> way of sorting out a final system it is that gives that preferential treatment to the team that finishes first but also to the teams that finish second and third and the double chances built into it through the course of four weeks. It, it, it doesn't... To my way of thinking, that is still... It'll always be the best way of sorting out... Um, to sorting out a, a, a postseason is the Final Five as it was set up uh, in the late 80s and into 1990. Uh, to, to go on the preliminary final of 1989, that was when the second part of Electrifying 80s aired on Channel 7. And, of course, the original TV version did not feature the grand final, um, as was the case in Sensational 70s. Or, or, the, or the prelim. Or the prelim. I think mm. oh, I think there's just no it doesn't have the yeah, it doesn't yeah. have the prelude because it would have been made no. they would have had to add footage that on that day yeah. yeah on that day because yeah. um, it was just presented out of the end of footy replay um, 
but the video version does feature the 89 grand final and look a lot of things get said about the 1989 grand final you know that there's no shortage of takes about the 1989 grand final but i want to just say this i cannot for the life of me watch um dermot burriton and mark yates in real time i can only watch that incident in slow motion now and that's because of a hundred years of Australian rules football with the isolation slow-mo cam <laughs> of Dermot recovering. That's the only way you can envision His it. Mind confused. But in the face of one man, the courage born of commitment, the will never to surrender till the premiership is won. I think you raise a good point because when that that footage, I'm not sure if it ever nah, came to I don't life think before it did. I don't think it did. I, th- I don't think it was around. And, and when you see it in '96 and you see that 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 isolated camera on on Dermot and um and you know uh, making his way to full forward and, and the towering mark over Stephen Hawking, who of course broken um, Lee Matthews' nose in uh, in in '85. So there's context there as well and history and all the rest. Um, yeah, and that and that's captured in Electrifying 80s too, of course. There's the Burton incident, and then we're straight into Ablett. Nonchalant, mercurial stuff. Finds it on the ground. We get those three goals, the three... Finds the three it on the ground. Moments, um, How good. Finds How it on the ground. Gilly, yeah, <laughs> I reckon we could spend and have already spent so much time talking about yeah. our favourite goal, yeah. but finds it on the ground, hard to top. Goes long down towards the pocket. Um, and then the very end with, you know, Hawthorne go back-to-back, save of the moment with Dennis Cometti kind of... Uh, was it, ladies and gentlemen, we've just witnessed a classic. Wasn't that the line yep. at the final siren? Yeah. Yeah. There's the Hawks are concerned. There's the siren. want to read more about committee's commentary um gilly wrote a piece back in 2012 about why it's the greatest commentary of a grand final of all time as well which i strongly recommend i think you were still writing under a yeah under it's, a pseudonym it's, time yeah, that pseudonym lasted for a while but it's now it's now shifted you, you can get it under my name now <laughs> oh that, that that's good to know but i, I, was, to I think to- I, was, I did a few of those while working for the afl on the afl's <laughs> dime so maybe that's why i was working writing under a pseudonym well it's it's a it's a better piece than anything staff writers can come up with shannon so i do recall reading it so so well done but yes to go back to my point about the 1989 grand final um on video is it's not best captured in electrifying 80s. It's best captured in 100 years of Australian football with the slow-mo cam of Derm mm. and the narration and the, the epic music as Dermot goes for a run and he has the spew and then he goes up and then, then you've got the pieces, the um, like Dipper going, oh, Dermot, what are you doing? I mean, that's just the most thrilling thing I've ever seen. My heart was just out here, you know, screaming out, you know, go Dermot. There's no myths about Burton's courage. He was a sensational player, his courage. Whether you like him or not, he handed it out. But he never ever pulled out when it came his turn when he wasn't in the box seat. Um, oh, we've got to get him off for. Should we keep him on? It, it, it's just the best. So to forward sell another video, which would, without doubt will be covered on this show, a uh, hundred years of Australian football. Um, best in, is the best vision of the '89 Grand Final, and I, I reckon that's probably the first time there is isolated camera vision at a Grand Final. Let's just say that that I don't want to give away that episode, but 
that documentary, there was a certain obsession with ISO cameras in that, doc- in really that documentary. There was, wasn't there? <laughs> it, was, it was isolation cameras and then some vision from World of Sport into, in the, from the 60s and a couple of newsreels. That, that was the it. format. That's it. <laughs> hey, um, we've just come to an end of electrifying 80s. Gents, it has been so oh. much fun over the past couple of weeks going through this iconic piece of football cinema and I couldn't have thought of any two better people to come on and recap the electrifying 80s. Both episodes combined go longer than the actual production itself. In fact, it's like watching electrifying 80s probably two and a half times consecutively. But I think we've given this iconic piece of football cinema justice. Thank you, Dylan. As I said said at the start of this, I'm honoured to be asked onto it and um, in all seriousness, it was... It, it was such a pivotal um, part of me loving footy and um, I will love it dearly forever. Yeah, I feel much the same way, Gilly. This this uh, this was one of the building blocks when I was a little kid and to uh, come back and talk about it with you uh, this week, Dylan, it's been so much fun and uh, I think you're doing a great thing with this podcast and looking forward to listening to many eps into the and future. And of course, uh, in terms of cross-promotion, we've got the greatest season that was... Uh, what do you got? What, what do you got coming up on the greatest season that was? I mean, you could be listening to this in two years' time, and it's already been made. But what have you got coming up? Well, yeah, quite a, a bit. bit. Quite a bit. Well, take, We're merging, aren't we? Coming, coming, coming soon is the Irish experiment. So that is very close to being released if you're listening to this in sort of real time. So um, keep your eyes peeled for that, and then yeah, there'll be some more. And, stuff and later Adam, in of course. Later uh, in the year. Of course, for cricket lovers, we've got the final word uh, out. What? How many times? Are, how many times are you and Jeff releasing the final word? Seven days a week? Is it? Uh, no, at least twice, twice a, week. a week. Sometimes more when we're talking to Glenn Maxwell, but we haven't. We aren't doing that at the moment because the IPL's finished. But yeah, we talk about cricket in all its forms uh, twice a week. It's a lot of fun. So you can find that in all the usual places. Fantastic, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on the Australian Football Video Film Festival talking about the one and only electrifying 80s. Thank you, Dylan. We finally got through it. The complete electrifying 80s in full yet again. A thanks to Adam Collins and Shannon Gill from the greatest season that was. All the final word. Um, if you listen to this show, you already listen to their stuff. I, I, I would be shocked if you didn't. Um, I think we've got a pretty good understanding of our audience. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival. My name is Dylan Leach. Uh, yet again, thank you to all of those who have subscribed, who have shared the podcast around their mates. Uh, we're, we're, we're on a purely $0 promotional budget and completely reliant on word of mouth, but uh, the listener numbers have been great. The feedback's been positive. The subs are up. I'm happy. You're happy. How good is this, as Rex Hunt would say? Uh, now, in terms of future episodes, we'll get more down in the pipeline. Uh, I'd love to make this as regular as I can, but... Uh, it's, it's all time dependent, but we will get there and uh, there's plenty of people etching to get on to do reviews and uh, we'll uh, relive some of the masterpieces of Electrifying 80s. So we've already done Sensational 70s, we've done Electrifying 80s, but don't worry, a 90s the decade that delivered edition of the Australian Football Video Film Festival is in the cards, on in the works, on the cards. It's going to happen. 
to stay tuned. Uh, again, a big thank you to Adam and Gilly for coming on. Colo and Gilly, much appreciated. Uh, thanks to Nick Bleeker for use of his magnificent studio here in Bris Vegas. The listeners, oh, we love you. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, and uh, don't forget, like the show on the uh, various social pages. We are on Facebook and Twitter. We might do Instagram, but, you know, we keep it old school with our socials. Um, and uh, if you could subscribe as well, uh, then you never miss an episode of this very fine program. Uh, yeah, so it's all much appreciated. This is the Australian Football Video Film Festival. Of course, thanks to our great mates, Anthony and the team at leaguetees.com.au. We will catch you soon. More Australian football video classics to review next time on the show. But for now, it's good night. Or good, no- or good morning. Or good afternoon. It's a podcast. Listen, you can sit in any time you want. We'll catch you next time.